Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is December 11, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a privilege to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from the reading for today's discussion on the Greater Hippias, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on any of these or the other themes, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today we'll discuss Plato's greater Hippias, one of his two dialogues involving the sophist named Hippias. Hippias is a buffoonish, conceited, and hypocritical character who is incapable of self-reflection and willingly disregards the potential of what he doesn't know, which is clearly far greater than the little that he does know. Socrates demonstrates the sophist's illogic on many occasions, when he steers Hippias into one after another self-contradiction. Although Hippias's rhetorical skills have earned him a great deal of money, the moneymaker's rhetoric fails to stand up to logic. Hippias, it seems, dispenses entertainment more than he does intelligence or wisdom, as Socrates implies with irony at 286a in telling Hippias, the Spartans enjoy you, predictably, because you know a lot of things and they use you the way children use old ladies to tell stories for pleasure. The Greater Hippias connects in many respects to Plato's Cratylus, which we just finished discussing in three incredibly thought-provoking episodes in which we built on each other's logic. I can't stop listening to them. It is truly amazing to witness the synthesis of knowledge that participants formed in our dialogues. The focus of the Cratylus was on the nature of things, and we defined things broadly as objects of thought. In today's reading, we'll see the sophist Hippias claim knowledge of the thing called kalon in Greek, which translates in a number of ways to English as fine or beautiful or excellent or noble. However, Hippias is unable to distinguish the thing from the cause of the thing, and in the present, as Plato pointed out in the Timaeus, all things come to be from a cause. On several occasions, Socrates makes a mockery of Hippias and his contradictory claims to know the essence of the fine, the kalon, when all the sophists can cite is popular but certainly not universal examples of what is perceived to be fine. Hippias has failed to distinguish cause from effect, which is the basis on which we understand sequences of time, isn't it? At the beginning of the dialogue, Socrates mentions the philosopher Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras lost a great inheritance of money through neglect, and Socrates observes that, quote, there was so little intelligence in his wisdom, unquote. Anaxagoras was said to have written that intelligence is the source of order in the universe, and in his contrast of the words intelligence and wisdom, Socrates invites us to consider the difference between these two things. In the Cratylus, Socrates stated that wisdom is knowledge of motion, because the observer must make an ordered account of the motion of all things in the present state of coming to be, when no thing is permanent and everything is in a constant state of change from order to entropy. So if intelligence is different from wisdom, how is it different? What is the thing we call intelligence? Hippias appears to connect intelligence of the fine and its opposite foul only to the visible and material. He's unable to perceive the source of fine attributes, thinking that perceptible fleeting images of what some consider to be fine things in a state of becoming 
whether they are girls or mares or liars, somehow derive their own fineness, beauty, excellence, and nobility without a cause. Hippias, who is a mockery of Protagoras's claim that man is the measure of all things, has failed to determine the most basic truth about things, which is that their cause and effect have a specific order in time. The universal logic of time, that it is impossible for anything to come to be without a cause, is inescapable, is it not? Cause always precedes effect, which always follows cause. The order of time escapes Hippias, even after Socrates prompts him at 292e to imagine what is, will be, and was fine. In other words, fine for all times, present, past, and future. So since Socrates mentions Anaxagoras, and by inference the belief of Anaxagoras that mind is the source of order for the universe, as we reflect on Hippias, what is Socrates asking us to think about the difference between the two things that we call intelligence and wisdom? Is knowledge of the order of time associated with intelligence and knowledge of motion associated with wisdom? If so, what is the difference? So I thought I would start with that introduction and a reading that I selected from, it's a very short reading, I can just read it. It's from 283a to b, and I wanted to have this discussion about the difference between intelligence and wisdom, because it, it does relate to the outcome of the dialogue here. So this is what I have on the screen. So I'll just read this paragraph, 283a to b. Socrates says, That's a fine thing you say, Hippias, strong evidence of your own and modern wisdom and of the superiority of men nowadays over the ancients. There was a lot of ignorance among our predecessors down to Anaxagoras, according to you. People say the opposite of what happened to you happened to Anaxagoras. He inherited a large sum, but lost everything through neglect. There was so little intelligence in his wisdom. And they tell stories like that about other early wise men. You make me see that there's fine evidence here, I think, for the superiority of our contemporaries over those who came before. And many will have the same opinion that a wise man needs to be wise primarily for his own sake. The mark of being wise, I see, is when someone makes the most money. Enough said about that. So Socrates is clearly being tongue-in-cheek and ironic here. And I just wonder what we think about this distinction between intelligence and wisdom. Thinking again back at what Socrates said in the Cratylus, that wisdom is knowledge of motion. Uh, and everything in the state of coming to be that we exist in physically, there's always this physical change going on. So there's always motion happening in the physical world, the state of coming to be in the present. And I think that's why he said that wisdom is understanding motion, because we have to understand what's going on in the present. But what's the difference between wisdom and intelligence? Are there any thoughts on that? And in terms of how Hippias demonstrates or doesn't demonstrate uh, either of those characteristics. I just wanted to put a image on the screen that may help us to identify some of the uh, some of the difference here. But we'll take J.K. first. J.K. Yeah, is he saying that um, wisdom is higher than intelligence because it takes uh, into account or the uh, the idea of motion that time is motion and change and is in flux so that's a higher that kind of truth is a is a higher form of uh, knowledge right than um, than intelligence that the um, the things are you know to know things as being in a state of stasis maybe one is de uh, dealing with uh, understanding what being is but without account of the idea of becoming that would be a um, a kind of lesser form of uh, wisdom or knowledge. 
uh, I think the way you put it is the way I read it is that wisdom is the overall knowledge of this state of becoming in which we exist and then contained within wisdom is sort of a lesser form I think is is how you put it is is intelligence which is knowledge of the sequence of events that occur in time uh, so wisdom is the knowledge of time itself or the motion of time but we have all of these motions we don't know with wisdom necessarily what order the motions came in and so I think the intelligence the way I'm reading it in his reference to Anaxagoras is a reference to the knowledge of the sequence of events that occur within that continuing motion. Uh, so really, one who has both wisdom and intelligence, I think, would be ultimately wise or ultimately informed. But you really, I think, needs both. That, that's the way I understand it. And I, I think maybe that's what you were saying, if I, if I understand what you said correctly. Right. So the uh, making money, you know, making the most money is, seems to be the... Um a common intelligence thing to uh, live your life. But, uh, you know, Anasagoras, um, through neglect, uh, lost all his money, but maybe gained something in return by that kind of loss. It's a higher form of wisdom. Mm -hmm. I like the way you put that, gain something from that loss. And certainly I think we learn by trial and error sometimes. And so sometimes in the course of making errors, we gain knowledge. Uh, so I think that's a good way of putting that. And certainly there's this theme going on here uh, at the beginning of the dialogue that the presumption of Hippias is that knowledge accrues on a linear scale so that what we know now is greater than what the ancients knew. And that's his sense of knowledge is that it always goes in that linear fashion. And so Hippias assumes that because he's more modern than the ancients, he has the greatest knowledge. And he talks about that in the section that follows this, when uh, they talk about the respect that the Spartans hold for Hippias, even though they won't accept his education because their laws prevent foreigners from educating them. So Sparta is held to be wise, or their system is held to be wise because it was designed by the ancients and they're stuck with that ancient system and they reject the modern teaching. And so Hippias is saying, well, if I had a chance to speak or to teach the, the Spartans, I would teach them a good thing or two. So um, there's this assumption that ancient wisdom is not as good as modern wisdom. And I think that's part of understanding this process of the, the sequence of events in time is that that may not necessarily be so. So I thought that was an interesting connection there. So we'll go to Olga and then Steve. Welcome, Olga. Hey, hi. I, in my life, I talked sometime with people who translating different texts from one language to another, and especially from ancient languages. And it's always difference between meaning and sometimes mistranslation, misunderstanding. And also even uh, you talking about sarcasm or sense of humor, it's also changing from country to country, from culture to culture, from, of course, from old time to this time. And what I understand uh, is my understanding of what is going on there, that wisdom is usually connected not only to knowledge, but also to experience. And he gave the example of something happened. So you have to have experience and know what is going on and see how things are changed all the time. 
And second thing is that intelligence is probably mostly connected to calculation. So you have to calculate what is going on. But I still kind of um, cannot be sure what in his view is wisdom and intelligence. You see, mm -hmm. and also his like how he presenting it. You see sarcasm here. I, for me, it's like humor and sarcasm. You have to feel it. I'm not sure about this translation. It probably should be more visible. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not sure because I kind of don't feel what he's actually saying. So, so that's that's always problem for me with all these texts. I cannot understand the precise, but I could interpret it, as I said, wisdom is something connected also to experience and mm -hmm. the, uh, intelligence to cal calculation, but it's my interpretation, my mm -hmm. modern interpretation today, which is more connected to my life and to my experience, to my society than to their, to their what they actually experience and thought. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's well said. I, I think you raised the idea that wisdom connects to experience while intelligence to con connects to calculation, which I'm, I'm seeing some connection to that here. And, and certainly the point that you raised about translation, and we all understand things a little bit differently, particularly that word that really is the focus of this dialogue, kalon, which is a Greek word. It translates variously into various favorable things in English, and it may translate into differently into different languages too. So I think that's maybe one of the points Plato is trying to make in terms of trying to find some sort of universal basis to things that are independent of these different translations. And he never gives us the answer. Uh, we always have to search for it. But I think what he's doing is he's telling us somehow that there is a difference here. And as I think you you put it is that wisdom, uh, you know, if it's knowledge of motion, as he said in, in um, the Cradless, then wisdom is some sort of maybe experience of motion whereas intelligence is some sort of calculation of the order of events within that motion. So I, I like the way that you put that. And I think you made some very good points in terms of translation and understanding the context. And, and certainly the goal of Plato, I think, is to try to get us to understand some sort of universal context of things. So I think that was very helpful. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Steve and then Abraham. Put forth some arguments uh, along the side of this being sarcasm. What I've read about this dialogue is that it came out uh, soon after the play by Aristophanes called The Clouds. In that play, Socrates was the brunt of the jokes of that play. And it was very, uh, they called, called him a, a sophist, made fun of him, and then saying he was just a sophist. And uh, some people believe that play itself was one of the main pieces of evidence or one circumstances or one, you know, the media you know, uh, view of Socrates had a big uh, effect on his trial when he was sentenced to death eventually. So what I read is that this dialogue appears to be Plato's answer to uh, that uh, play about Socrates. And uh, so he is using the sophist Hippias as he's leading him around by his nose through this whole, whole discussion. So I'm saying this is in the background that this is there that when he's talking about, you know, being wise, he's not, he's not necessarily expressing Plato's point of view here. He's using it as a foil in order to, to show why the uh, sophists were, were 
different than than a philosopher. Like in the end of it, it says the superiority of our contemporaries over those who came before him, and many will have the same the same opinion that a wise man needs to be wise primarily for his own sake. The mark of being wise, I see, is when someone makes the most money. So this is sort of like saying you'd have to be like an Elon Musk in order to be considered wise. And then if he loses all his money, then even though he you know, might be a great engineer and inventor, you know, he won't be considered wise. So I think that you know, keeping in the background the idea that this isn't necessarily Plato or Socrates proclaiming what wisdom is, he's sort of showing how the sophists do not represent or how they're representing themselves. Mm -hmm. And that the way they're representing themselves, he's making fun of them or sarcasm to show that they are not really wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and certainly that background that you provided is helpful in terms of Aristophanes, the clouds and his lampooning of Socrates and that. And here, certainly what, what's happened before this and why it seems to be sarcastic is that before this part, Hippias has claimed that, first of all, he's always called on to be ambassadors for cities because he's so... He has such a great uh, presence and great knowledge, and cities want him to represent them. And then he says that he makes ton of, he's made more money than any other sophist, and people really value his knowledge. And so he's equating this making of money with wisdom. And so Socrates is, it's not like Socrates to agree with something like that. And that's why this is sarcastic, because we know Socrates thinks far more about something uh, like wisdom than just the making of money. So I think that's an indication of this sarcasm and certainly the fact that this was preceded by all of these boasts that uh, Hippias made, uh, I think is indic indicative of the fact that Socrates is being sarcastic here. So thank you for that background. I, I think it was really useful. We'll go to Abraham. Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you. Uh, good to be here. I think uh, uh, some of my thoughts regarding the knowledge and wisdom. Uh, knowledge seems to be dealing with the most specific, narrow domain. So let's say what about what? I think wisdom seems to be dealing with a broader, more general, overarching domains. So I think I would say about why and how. I think uh, I think. Uh, this summer I suffered a lot actually because of small ants. So infested ants in my house. So I think two months it took it took me for about two months to take care of that. I finally bought uh insecticide. So at the corner of it, I bought it at Target, something like that, $10. But for the ants, they did their best to provide and to keep their colony, I would say. But for me, it was a battle. I had to kill a lot of them using my hands and tissues. And then they were very intelligent for their aspect, but I had to use my intelligence. So finally, after getting insecticide, I realized how much more time I have at home. Like for them, it might have been disaster, right? So like, uh, 95, 99% annihilated. But for me, it saved me so much time. And also at night, it beat me from, from time to time, maybe several occasions for the two months. So I think uh, 
the reason why I'm sharing this story is I have one more story also. So I heard the story in Scotland somewhere, 300 ship falling from the cliff one by one. Why? Because they were following the, the pasture, the plant, then they were the delicious one. And they follow that, the one fall fell, and then on, on next one followed the same path. And someone witnessed 300 ships fell off the cliff. So I think uh, uh, what I'm saying, trying to say is, we have to deal with our issues as human species. We say an anthropocentrism, I would say. However, we cannot ignore or pretend that there are other domains or modes or uh, levels of intelligence which govern us. Some of them we might know a little better than other species. Some of them might not. So I think uh, uh, wisdom is more like a direction in a way. We don't know what it is. We use it. We aspire. I think we need that that direction. That's some of my thought. Yeah. And that's helpful i think that that comparison that you made of knowledge being of something of one specific thing maybe uh so thing being again going back to the cratylus as we defined an object of thought so knowledge is of a particular object of thought whereas you said wisdom is more general and it wisdom answers maybe the why question whereas knowledge answers the how question and so why is the more general question so that was a really interesting way of putting it and then also calling wisdom knowledge of direction, which I think would tie to that idea of knowledge of motion that Socrates brought out in the Cratylus that, you know, motion leads to a direction. And so by having wisdom, we know what direction things are, are heading, especially in time. Uh, and, and so then, you know, maybe this gets us into the definition of intelligence as knowledge of the order of events in time. So I think what you said was was helpful in that respect. And then also that comparison of the the sheep falling off the cliff in Scotland, just sort of falling, following one another without questioning. And we don't want to be in that sort of trap as human beings. And I think Hippias gives evidence of that trap a number of times. Uh, there's one point in the dialogue where he says that if everybody says a thing is fine, like everybody says a girl is fine or gold is fine, then it's true because everybody says it's fine and nobody will refute you. But that's really more like a feedback loop where no change happens. And just because we believe somebody's perception that gold is fine, that we all have to believe somehow that that is fine. And that's maybe that kind of analogy of following the sheep off the cliff instead of doing our own thinking. So certainly Socrates, I think, would advocate that we do our own thinking on these sorts of things. So I think that was helpful the way that you put that. I just wanted to share uh, the screen again. This is just a different different diagram here. And this is a little bit of geometry similar to what I did last time, but I'll keep this one relatively short. This is the electromagnetic wave here that I have on the screen. So it's a, a sine wave that goes up and then down and up and down and up and down, kind of the same height, uh, kind of the same peaks as valleys. And in, be in between these peaks and valleys is a straight line. And the straight line is, has an arrow pointing to the right, and it's labeled time. Whereas the up and down lines, those are the waves. And so this is the electromagnetic wave. It's a sine wave. And I just thought this would be interesting to equate to wisdom and intelligence in terms of uh, if we were to maybe draw a circle 
Let's see if I can draw this somewhat circle-like. That's somewhat cir circular. So I drew a circle around one of these peaks and troughs of the wave. And then similar to what I did last time, I'll label the line, the straight line, I'll label the line thing. Because in, in the Timaeus, Plato said, or, or Timaeus said, that everything in the universe is circular, or all shapes fit into a circle. Uh, so I drew a circle around this, this wave. And what I would do is maybe just based on, I think, the comments that we've had so far, I would label the border of that circle as wisdom, uh, just because it's more general. It's, it's, it's broader in scope, uh, that, that circle. And then within that circle is the wave that goes up and down. And I put right in the middle of that wave uh, a little dot. And I would say that dot is maybe the cause of that particular thing. And the thing is what's on that straight line. And so maybe what we have in here inside this circle is intelligence. There's a certain order what's happening here when this, you know, my pen is messing up the screen here, but within this uh, circle, there's a few events happening here. This wave crosses the line twice. So the, the line is a thing and the wave is crossing the line twice. And so maybe what we have here in that, those two intersections with a line is intelligence and understanding the order of what's happening to the thing that's on that line would be the intelligence. So first you have that first dot and then comes the second dot. So that's kind of the order of things or the order of events that happen to that thing. The thing is trapped within that circle. And then the order of events is the, the, two, the, the two points where the wave crosses that line. So that was just a little illustration of what I'm hearing and the way I, I kind of felt it, it is that wisdom would be that more broad, um, uh, kind of circular boundary, whereas the thing itself is sort of trapped on that straight line. The thing has a beginning and an end. We talked about that last time. Uh, everything has a beginning and an end that separates it from other things. So events happen to the thing, and we have intelligence of the sequence of events that happen to the thing. And then wisdom is that overall knowledge of motion. And the motion really in this diagram is happening in this wave. This wave is moving. It's going up and down. There's no motion in that, in that line. The line is just static. It's a one-dimensional line, but the motion is happening in that wave. So I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, I sometimes think these, in, at least in my mind, these illustrations help to kind of put things in context. And I found that context of the circle being that more general and inside the circle being the specific events that, that happen. Um, so we'll take JK and then Olga. So would this be a quantum event in which um, if the subject um, tends to, you know, observe it, it only sees, the subject only sees the particle, right? The thing itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the true understanding of what that thing is, that the event is, is the is the uh, quantum wave particle or, you know, uh, called a wavicle. Mm -hmm. So that would be a more comprehensive understanding of what the quantum might be. It's still not a, a true understanding, but at least at least it's a kind of step in that right direction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that analogy. I think that's very helpful because the 
you know, understanding a quantum event, as we know now from modern science, that actually causes a change in the outcome. It, actually observing that quantum event causes a change in the outcome. And uh, so we always, because we, anytime we observe there's a change, we have to understand the underlying events that are causing those things that we are observing. And I think that's maybe a good reason why Plato would say that we have to understand the broad motions of things and, and the mechanics of the broad motions of things, but then you have to understand the the order of uh, of events within those motions. Uh, and I think that would certainly uh, have some good analogy to uh, our understanding now of quantum mechanics. So I think that's that's quite helpful. Also, and, uh, would that be kind of like the uh, the subject uh, in an effort to spatialize time, right? As opposed to the experience of true time, which would be a um, understanding or kind of like a perception of of the event, a quantum event as a as a whole, uh, it spatializes that event in terms of a particle. Mm -hmm. It only sees the particle, mm -hmm. but it is a kind of like a, you know um, represents for me a kind of a subjective experience of what the uh, quantum event might be. You know, you know, you could see it both ways, right? The subject. If it's uh, like uh, the hippie's intelligence you know, can only see the calculation, the measurement in space, the but the dot on the line mm -hmm. and the line itself, right. as opposed to the wisdom of uh, trying to understand the whole whole of what the event is. That is a subjective event. It's still it doesn't try to um, localize too much of mm -hmm. what's uh, what what is the subjective experience. And interesting, you you mentioned spatialize. And I think that's definitely what's happening with motion. This motion in here in this wave is happening in three dimensions. This wave here, it, it, the peaks and the valleys, those are twisting and turning around in circles, and those are happening in three dimensions. But the thing itself is that one-dimensional idea that has a beginning and an end, but doesn't have any space necessarily. It's our uh, our mode of thinking about the the, the or the the thing being the object of thought so the object of thought itself is has a beginning and an end but is not necessarily put in space unless the thing is a physical thing but not all things are physical things and i think that's the trap that hippias falls into hippias tends to think that only visible things um, have value and i think he dismisses the the things that don't have a physical presence so i think both there's both physical spatialized things and there's things that don't have any physical presence and we need to keep track of both of those and that's why i put the thing on the line because we can do with the thing what we want we can put the thing in space and then make it a physical thing or we can leave it on the line uh, in which case it's a mental concept that has a beginning and an end but no physical presence so an interesting way of putting it thank you and we'll go to Olga. Um, I just have a quick question. Uh, my connection, it's not very stable, and sometimes I miss something. So you said that someone said that everything in the universe is circular. Mm -hmm. But who said it? That's going back to Plato's Timaeus. Um, and we talked about that in the previous episode as well. So in the Timaeus, it was said that the circular form of the universe is the most appropriate and actually I put that on the on the cover page um let me just go back to the cover page here i'll reshare the screen yeah just go up here 
and show you. This is the Timaeus. Uh, I have this excerpt here from Timaeus 33b. So this is about the, the making of the, of the universe, Plato's dialogue on the making of the universe. This is why he concluded that he should fashion the world as a single whole, composed of all wholes, complete and free of old age and disease, and why he fashioned it that way. And he gave it a shape appropriate to the kind of thing it was, the appropriate shape for that living thing that is to contain within itself all the living things would be the one which embraces within itself all the shapes there are. So he's saying here that all shapes fit into the circle because he goes on to say, hence he gave it a round shape, the form of a sphere, with its center equidistant from its extremes in all directions. This of all shapes is the most complete and the most like itself, which he gave to it because he believed that likeness is incalculably more excellent than unlikeness. And I put this excerpt here in the notes for today, as well as the ones that we looked at uh, in the last episode, because of the use of the word appropriate. And the, the term appropriate comes up in the greater Hippias as they have this debate as to whether what is appropriate is fine. So there was that example, uh, and we'll have a chance maybe to read that a little bit later, where Hippias makes the claim that anything with gold in it is always fine. No matter what it is, you put gold in it and it's, and it's fine. And then they talk about whether a soup spoon made out of gold would be a fine thing compared to a wooden spoon. And then they decide that the wooden spoon would be more appropriate to the consumption of soup than a gold spoon, because a wooden spoon wouldn't be prone to spilling things, it wouldn't put out the fire, whereas the gold spoon would be very awkward to use with eating soup. So then Hippias walks back his conclusion that gold is not necessarily always fine, it's what's fine is appropriate to the purpose which is required. So this is one of those contradictions that Hippias gets into. And so I thought the one of the reasons why I put this excerpt here in today's notes was that use of the word appropriate. So Plato in the Timaeus made the statement that the universe is made out of a round shape, the form of a sphere. Okay. Well, I have a question that it seems like what you're saying, it's not so much about circular or round shape or like repeatable process, no? what you're on your uh, drawing. On the drawing, yeah. I mean, what I did was in the drawing, I just, I tried to equate wisdom with the circle. The circle being the boundary of the universal shape. All shapes fit within the circle. So I, I put wisdom as, as that more general knowledge uh, of the boundary of the circle. And that's why I was doing that. And then inside, I put the thing on the straight line, the, the line that was labeled time. And that's what I did. So it, it was just a way of visualizing, I think, that difference between wisdom and intelligence. And, and it seems Hippias has problems with both wisdom and intelligence, but certainly wisdom being the understanding of motion. And if everything is moving within this circular shape, as Plato says in the Timaeus, certainly understanding Plato's thought process, one would have to understand the Timaeus and that statement that everything is circular in the universe or anything, every shape fits within the circular boundary. And then all motion would then happen within that circular boundary. And knowledge of motion, he said in the Cradless, was wisdom. And so then I think some of the other comments that we were getting at, at the beginning when I was asking what the difference is, you know, I think the, the general theme that was coming out is that uh, wisdom is broader, whereas intelligence is something more specific. And to use the term of, or, or the idea of Anaxagoras, intelligence maybe being the order of events in time. Anaxagoras made the claim that the mind is responsible for the everything in the order of time. And that becomes problematic as, as is demonstrated in this dialogue because the mind of Hippias is clearly disordered. 
And so I think this is continuing on this play on the question whether man is the measure of all things. We saw that in the dialogue of Theotetus, in which the sophist Protagoras was said to say that man is the measure of all things. In other words, that each one of us is capable of establishing the limits of the things that are. And then clearly here, uh, Hippias is very is very troubled in terms of establishing the limits of things that are. He keeps contradicting himself and going back and forth. So I think one of the conclusions of this dialogue, like the crowdless, is that maybe man is not the measure of all things. So and we'll go to JK, and then I have a reading. JK. I'm just thinking up. Does this have anything to do with the idea of enduring that we're, um, everything, the mind and the, um, the material world are in a process of, of this uh, becoming and it's changing in flux and uh, it destroys, you know, at, um, you know, nothing can endure, right? Uh, except there is, you see something uh, in the material world that does endure, like a rock or something that, but it uh, ultimately cannot endure the process of destruction. Mm -hmm. But there is a, um, the, um, the time, of the um, the mind uh, that does endure, there's a memory that could endure, and that that kind of that idea of concept of enduring could be the forms. So is that what this dialogue is also uh, hinting at? I think very much so. I mean, because and we'll see in this reading that uh, I put on the screen here, Socrates is asking what the fine is the, the fine itself that original cause from which everything else became fine uh, and hippias doesn't understand that question so hippias is simply trapped in the present in this changing state uh, in which everything comes to be everything starts at a uh, we know from the physics of things now that everything starts in a maximum state of order and then proceeds to a maximum state of disorder which is called entropy and that's a that's a law of physics that's how everything physical works. Even though a rock may look like it's a permanent thing, it does over millions of years decay and erode and wash away. So not even a rock is permanent. So I think what Plato is saying is that in this present state where we are in this physical universe, or at least our bodies are in this physical universe, everything is in a state of change, but our minds, I think he's implying, are in this other permanent realm this realm that he calls in the Timaeus the realm of being, which is a permanent state. And we can the mind can reach into that permanent state of being for understanding of things that are constantly changing in the state of becoming in the present, which is a, which is the state that our bodies and everything physical occupies, but our mind is not physical. Our mind is not subject to those same rules. So that is, I think, very definitely the forms. And this is you know the 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 eternal, timeless, unchanging form of things uh, that Hippias is having such great trouble with. So I think that that question is a very helpful lead into this reading here that I have on the screen. And this reading is where Socrates is challenging Hippias to define what is fair and then by extension, what is foul, which is the opposite of fair. So fair and foul. Socrates is trying to ask Hippias, well, how do you define that range? You know, if everything comes to be in opposites, as Plato said in the Phaedo, or actually Socrates said in the Phaedo, everything comes to be in opposites. So you have fine. Well, then because there's a fine, there must be an opposite of the fine, which is foul or 
hideous or ugly or you know however however you want to translate the fine so the fine that again that word cologne so what's the opposite of cologne which translates as you know beautiful fine noble excellent there's clearly an opposite to that if we know that there are those things then we know that there must be an opposite and so he's challenging hippias here to define what establishes that reign between fair and foul and i don't know if we if anybody would care to help me read this part or i can I can read it. Uh, I just thought it was a useful section to understand this train of logic that Hippias is having trouble with, this understanding the order of things in time. Yeah, I'll take Hippias. Okay, all right. Do you want to take uh, Socrates or Hippias? Uh, Hippias. Okay, all right. Thank you, JK. Well, so we'll start this reading at 287b and to 288d, and uh, I'll take Socrates. So Socrates starts... Uh, after Hippias says a number of things, Socrates says, that's amazingly well said. Now, since it's your command, let me become the man as best I can try and try to question you. If you displayed that speech to him, the one you mentioned about the fine activities, he'd listen. And when you stopped speaking, he'd ask not about anything else, but about the fine. That's the sort of habit with him. And he'd say, oh, visitor from Ellis, is it not by justice that people are just? Answer Hippias, as if he were the questioner. I shall answer that. It is by justice. And is this justice something? Very much so. And by wisdom, wise people are wise. And by the good, all good things are good. How could they be not be otherwise? By these each being something. Of course, it can't be that they're not. They are. Then all fine things, too, are fine by the fine. Isn't that so? Yes, by the fine. By that being something? It is. Why not? Tell me then, visitor, he'll say. What is that, the fine? Doesn't the person who asks this want to find out what is a fine thing? I don't think so, Hippias. What is the fine? And what's the difference between the one and the other? You don't think there is any? There's no difference. Well, clearly your knowledge is finer. He's being, I think, ironic here. But look here. He's asking you not what is a fine thing, but what is the fine. My friend, I understand. I will indeed tell him what the fine is, and never will I be refuted. Listen, Socrates, to tell the truth, a fine girl is a fine thing. Well, that's fine, Hippias. By dog, you have a glorious answer. So you really think if I gave that answer, I'd be answering what was asked, and correctly, and never will Stop. I be refuted? Socrates, how could you be refuted when you say what everyone thinks, when everyone who hears you will testify that you're right? Well, very well, certainly. Now look, Hippias, let me go over what you said for myself. He will question me something like this. Come now, Socrates, give me an answer. All those things you say are fine. Will they be fine if the fine itself is what? Shall I say that if a fine girl is a fine thing, those things will be fine because of that? Then do you think that man will try to refute you, that what you say is not a fine thing? Or if he does try, he won't be a laughingstock? You're wonderful, but I'm sure he'll try. Whether trying will make him a laughingstock, we'll see about that. But I want to tell you what he'll say. Tell me. How sweet you are, Socrates, he'll say. Isn't the fine alien mare a fine thing? The god praised mares in his oracle. What shall we say, Hippias? Mustn't we say that the mare is a fine thing, at least if it's a fine one? How could we dare deny that the fine thing is a fine thing? 
That's true, Socrates. And the God was right to say that too. We breed very fine mares in our country. Very well, he'll say. What about a fine liar? Isn't it a fine thing? Shouldn't we say so, Hippias? Yes. Then after that, he'll ask, I know fairly well, judging from the way he is. Then what about a fine pot, my good fellow? Isn't it a fine thing? Who is this man, Socrates? What a bore he is to dare in an august proceeding to speak such a vulgar speech that way. He's like that, Hippias, not refined. He's garbage. He cares about nothing but the truth. So thank you, JK, for, for that. There's a lot going on in this little section. I, I think a lot of discussion is about the order of things. So does the fine or the beautiful come before things that are beautiful? So the, the beautiful itself surely must have to exist before things become beautiful. And that's I think that's what he's asking Hippias. And Hippias says, well, no, we just have to look at beautiful things. And beautiful things are beautiful in their own right. There, there's nothing that makes them beautiful. They're just that way. And so then he starts talking about fine, you know, beautiful girls and beautiful horses and beautiful instruments and all of this stuff. But he never really answers the question, what is beautiful itself? What is there a universal definition of beautiful? And, you know, I think Socrates is implying that surely that definition would have to exist before you would then start applying the definition to things such as girls and instruments and horses. So there's there's a couple of things going on there. I just wanted to point out the misunderstanding. I'm just looking for that section here. The misunderstanding of the question, which is a point that one of the participants made in our last session. I can't remember whether it was it might have been Daniel or Abraham or Steve, I can't remember who it was, that made the point that you have to understand the question in order to be able to answer it. And, and clearly, uh, Hippias doesn't understand the question. He says there's no difference. And Socrates says, well, clearly your knowledge is finer. But look here, he's asking you not what is a fine thing. Hippias just keeps giving examples of what is a fine thing. He's asking you what is the fine, the definition by which individual things become fine. And so Hippias just doesn't answer, he doesn't comprehend that, that, that there could be some order in the occurrence of fine first, and then things that are fine, or things that share that characteristic of fine. So the fine itself is a form, and then the particular things, the, the fine is the general form, the particular things share some characteristics of that general form. I think that's the idea of Plato's forms coming through here. Uh, there was another section here that I wanted to just highlight, this section that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, where Hippias says, Socrates, how could you be refuted when you say what everyone thinks, when everyone who hears you will testify that you're right? In other words, he's saying here that let's not bother getting into these complicated definitions. Everybody agrees that a fine instrument is fine and that a fine girl is fine. And, uh, you know, why dispute that? Because everybody agrees. So let's just get on with it. And, you know, really then Hippias is just committing that constant, that constant problem because fine things change over time. So he is not understanding the consequences of time and the way that our judgment of fine things changes over time. So I just wonder what, what everyone thinks about this section in terms of this ordering of, and that's why I started with this question of what is intelligence versus wisdom, because I, I think if that reference that Socrates makes to Anaxagoras, 
at the beginning um, implies that Anaxagoras thinks that the mind is responsible for the ordering of all things in the universe. Uh, Socrates seems to be saying, well, it's not necessarily the mind. It's actually intelligence, which not all minds possess. And intelligence is understanding that order of things, which is, I think, what we were trying to get at with that. So does this strike anybody particularly in that context? Or is there any other thoughts that we have looking at this rather lengthy section that we just read? I think it covers a lot of ideas. So is uh, Hippias um, being purely uh, nominalistic and denying, you know, uh, reality to uh, anything universal. Uh, he's pointing out that each individual thing is fine and so forth, but there's nothing uh, common mm -hmm. that we can uh, say about uh, these different individual things. Mm -hmm. That's certainly the way I see it. Uh, I don't think Hippias ever demonstrates that he has an understanding of the universals, although he did seem to be very willing to agree at the beginning that just things become just by justice itself. He had no problem with that at the beginning. And then he's, he said that good things become good by the good itself. He, he didn't seem to have a problem with that, but he wasn't really apparently thinking about it because then he starts to refute the idea that the beautiful or the fine is caused by something or, or fine things are caused by something universal called the fine. So he, he's contradicting himself. He, he agrees readily with the idea that there's this universal justice and universal goodness, which then he goes on later, by the way, to, to refute or, or to question, but he never stops to think about why he doesn't apply the same logic to the fine. And he's only able to identify fine things as opposed to a more universal definition of the fine. So I think that was a useful way of looking at it. Maybe we can go on to read another bit here. And this is when Hippias goes on to talk about the gold, the, the addition of gold being what makes things fine. And this is from 289D to 291A. I don't know if I would have anybody volunteering to read again, or I can read this. This is a bit of a shorter section here. I could read Hippias's part if you like. Okay. All right. Thank you, Steve. So it, it, I mentioned, wanted to mention, by the way, in that section that we just read, that was when they refer to the man, that was Socrates creating this artificial person, which is really his alter ego. Uh, and he's saying that, well, let, let's pretend that there's this person. Hippias doesn't know that he's pretending it's himself. Socrates says, there's this person out there who's asking me these questions, and you educate me so that I can respond to this person. But that person, Socrates, is just really himself. He doesn't let that on. So, But this, this line of questioning goes on where Socrates has this uh, imaginary third person in the scene. So. This is, uh, again, at 289D, Socrates says, he'll say, if I had asked you from the beginning what is both fine and foul, and you had given me the answer you just gave, then wouldn't you have given the right answer? Do you still think that the fine itself, by which everything else is beautified and seen to be fine, when that form is added to it, that that is a girl or a horse or a liar? But if that's what he's looking for, it's the easiest thing in the world to answer him and tell him that the fine thing is by itself, is by which everything is beautiful and is seen to be fine when it is added. The man's quite simple. He has no feeling at all for fine possessions. If you answer him that this thing he is asking for, the fine, is just gold, he'll be stuck and won't try to refute you. 
because we all know, don't we, that whenever that is added, even if it was seen to be foul before, it will be seen to be fine when it has become beautiful with gold. And Socrates continues, he's being ironic here because the man, of course, is himself. He says, you have no experience of this man, Hippias. He stops at nothing and he never accepts anything easily. So what? You accept what's said correctly or, if not, a laughing stock. Well, that answer he certainly will not accept, my friend. And what's more, he'll jeer at me and say, are you crazy? Do you think Phidias is a bad workman? And I'll say, no, not at all. And just to break here, Phidias was responsible for the sculptures at the, the Parthenon. So he'll he'll go on to talk about the sculpture of Athena. And you'll be right about that. Well, right enough. Then when I agree that Phidias is a good workman, this person will say, next, do you think Phidias didn't know about this fine thing you mentioned? What's the point, I'll say? The point is, he'll say, that Phidias didn't make Athena's eyes out of gold, nor the rest of her face, nor her feet, nor her hands as he would have done if gold would really have made them be seen to be finest. But he made them out of ivory. Apparently he went wrong through ignorance. He didn't know gold was what made everything fine, wherever it is added. What shall we answer when he says that, Hippias? It's that hard. We'll say he made the statue right. Ivory's fine too, I think. Then why didn't he work the middles of the eyes out of ivory? He used stone, and he found stone that resembled ivory as closely as possible. Isn't a stone a fine thing, too, if it's a fine one? Shall we agree? Yes, at least when it's appropriate. But when it's not appropriate, it's foul. Do I agree or not? Yes, when it's not appropriate anyway. Well, he'll say, you're a wise man. Don't ivory and gold make things to be seen to be fine when they're appropriate, but foul when they're not? Shall we be negative, or shall we agree with him that he's right? We agree to this. Whatever is appropriate to each thing makes that particular thing fine. Then, he'll say, when someone boils the pot we just mentioned, the fine one, full of fine bean soup, is a gold stirring spoon or a figwood one more appropriate? Hercules, what kind of man is this? Won't you tell me who he is? You wouldn't know him if I told you the name. But I know right now he's an ignoramus. Oh, he's a real plague, Hippias. Still, what shall we say? Which of the two spoons is appropriate to the soup in the pot? Isn't it clearly the wooden one? It makes the soup smell better. And at the same time, my friend, it won't break our pot, spill out the soup, put out the fire, and make us do without a truly noble meal when we were going to have a banquet. The gold spoon would do all these things. So... I think we would say that the figwood spoon is more appropriate than the gold one, unless you say otherwise. Yes, it's more appropriate. But I wouldn't talk with a man who asks things like that, which is ironic, ironic <laughs> because he is talking to somebody <laughs> that feels that way. Exactly. Well, thank you, Steve, for, for reading that. It's um, Yeah, there's, there's a great amount of play going back and forth in this section. I really love the drama of it. Socrates having invented this alter ego, putting the alter ego in the discussion, not revealing to Hippias who it is. Hippias, of course, is clueless and continues his line of argument, first saying that gold is the finest thing, and then he concedes that ivory is fine too, and then he concedes that stone can be fine. And so the fine is, because he's only limiting the fine to these physical objects, he's unable to measure 
what is fine and foul. Like he keeps changing the measurement. Um, so, Steve, your thoughts? Yeah, on a, and on the uh, sentence you have underlined that uh, under Hippias, he, he has no feelings at all for fine possessions when he was talking about the himself, his alter ego, which goes back to that original theme that we talked about where Socrates was being sarcastic with saying that the uh, person that made the most money is the wisest. So here he's showing that he, he has no no feeling at all for fine possessions, which, you know, again, as a response, say, to the clouds, that uh, here he is, he is not like a sophist. He is, you know, that's a showing, showing off the differences between a sophist and a true philosopher. For sure, for sure. And, and I think here, too, that Hippias is, again, demonstrating his belief in only the physical, only the things that can be seen or heard, which he... We'll see later on, he goes to say that only things that can be seen or heard are fine. So again, he's just stuck on the physical. He, he can't think of a universal thing in thought, which is not necessarily physical, but is fine. So again, he's having problems with the form of the fine, and he's having problems with the order in which things become fine. In Hippias's mind, there is no single thing that makes all things fine. Things are fine just by this kind of varying measuring stick that he applies, you know, just because he thinks something is fine, then he assumes everybody else is thinking that it's going to be fine. I mean, do we find examples of this in the modern world? I'm just thinking in terms of the way things are defined. You know, we talked about the definition of the word intelligence. We have in our modern world, this word that comes out every day, that's or this term that comes out every day, artificial intelligence or AI. Do we really understand what's meant by intelligence in that sense? Is there actually intelligence in the machine? Does the machine understand? If intelligence is understanding the order, order of events in time and what made them happen, does the machine really understand that? Or is that really something in the domain of humans? And are we misapplying the word intelligence in that sense by not really understanding the universal form of intelligence? So I'll put that thought out there if anybody has any ideas on that. We'll go to Olga. Um, first, I want to say that I probably need to live in like three thirty. Okay, and second, um, that's what uh, is uh, from my point of view going going here. It's like Socrates has some kind of a system of arranging his philosophy, and Hippias doesn't. But uh, what we actually see here, that nothing is really definable. It's, you cannot separate this from this. And what is really um, defined, beautiful or good or bad, it's up to the question and to discussion. For example, when you said, like, you that summarize what... Hippias said that if you add gold to something, it will be fine. It's kind of, you you create a joke. You create this very good joke, actually, like street, uh, Wall Street joke. Like you talk to someone who working on Wall Street and he says, huh, if you add a little bit money to anything, that everybody will like it. 
you see <laughs> so <laughs> so it's um very yes in this in this context in this discussion we see that socrates try to make something and tried hippies to see something and hippies is not able he is like uh learn something in his life, learn how to do this, how to attract people, how to make money, and that's it. And Socrates try to put him in some way to see something and to answer the question, but he is not capable. And about intelligence, right now it's so many discussions. We still discuss what is beauty, what is good, what is bad. We still discuss it. People disagree, and there are a lot of uh, different schools. And But intelligence and artificial intelligence, it's absolutely... Um, separate question because again there are a lot of discussion could we call it intelligence and what is um it's actually how it works and could be comparable and there are a lot of examples but it's serious and absolutely separate discussion because there are a lot of questions and a lot of examples what is this and what is this so that's probably it, and mm -hmm. uh, that's it. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And thank you. I, I think that you know you, you drew attention that with that Wall Street analogy, certainly brought to attention the fact that Hippias tends to equate everything with money. Uh, he says very clearly at the beginning he makes the most money, and that if he were to go to Sparta and if he were able to charge the Spartans for his knowledge, they would pay him a great deal of money. So somehow he thinks that his experience with raising money through dispensing what he calls knowledge and what he calls wisdom, he's equating that with intelligence. And, you know, he doesn't really seem to demonstrate any of that. I think that was an interesting analogy. Uh, certainly, you know, experience of the physical realm, I guess, is part of understanding the nature of motion, which Socrates defined as wisdom, understanding motion. Certainly, we have to have experience to understand the nature of motion, but it's more than just physical experience. It's also that emotional experience and the thought experience that goes with it. And, and Hippias dismisses all of that. It, it's really for him just the physical experience. And so he seems to be able to then boil down the fine as, as gold and then the fine as ivory and then the fine as stone. And he doesn't really seem to apply his experience fully in that whole matter. So um, I appreciate that. Could I give? I uh, yeah. it's something to remind me about mm -hmm. um, one example, very, very good example about artificial intelligence uh, that I heard about just recently. Many people uh, who working with technology they saying that uh, we confuse intelligence and machine learning, and how this machine learning it's actually happens. Machine has uh, a lot of data from different sources, some of them fake sources, some of them not fake sources, some of them good or bad. And it's kind of search through these sources and then give the answer of the question. For example, one woman, probably young woman right now who does not have access to like uh, experience um, of all the generation and probably doesn't talk to her mom. Uh, she had a child and child was crying and crying and crying and crying. She did not know what to do. At last, she went to computer and asked, my child is crying. What could I do to stop baby crying? 
And uh, this uh, very comprehensive uh, machine learning program uh, answer was to stop baby crying, wear a condom. So somewhere it was the closest answer in all database. It was the closest answer to this question. And, and it was given to this woman. So to, it's, it's probably somewhere was there is for us. Don't, baby, don't cry. I will wear a condom. So, so, so something like could be in the, in the database. So that's kind of um, how these so-called intelligent is working. So it's uh, absolutely different from what we consider intelligence. Mm -hmm. Although intelligence could be also called as calculation or something like this, I think. That's a great example, actually, of how teaching a machine the order of events in time is so difficult. So baby crying, we need a present solution to that. So the machine gave you a solution that goes back to not creating the baby, which is impossible to go back to that point. So that's a perfect example of, of I think, this problem of machine learning is not being able to teach it the logical sequence of events in time. And I actually read an example, not as humorous as the one that you just gave us, but I read an example in our last section uh, from the book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans by Melanie Mitchell, in which she had this little scenario that she said would be very difficult to program a computer to understand the scenario where a man goes into a restaurant and orders a hamburger and he wants it medium done and he receives the hamburger and it's burned to a crisp. And the waitress comes back and, and she says, well, how do you like your meal? And he says, oh, that's just great, he says, you know, and then he stands up and he storms out of the restaurant and the waitress says, why is he so bent out of shape? And Melanie Mitchell's question is, the question for the machine, if you put the question to the machine, did the man eat the hamburger? We didn't say whether he ate the hamburger in that little scenario. The machine wouldn't understand what generally typically happens in the order of time when somebody receives something that's clearly not what they ordered. They wouldn't eat it, right? But you have to tell the machine in the machine learning that that's a particular scenario that would exist. And then how do you define all of those scenarios? So, you know, you really need with the machine some more general parameters that it would understand a situation like that without having to go into these specific defining the order of events every single time you have a different scenario. So that is very much the problem with the machine learning. And, you know, by extension, the application of the word intelligence to something that is artificial and really the art part of that artificial, I think Eva brought this up a couple episodes back, is really human art. And so does the machine really demonstrate that human understanding? And, you know, I, I'm having more and more problems with the application of the word intelligence to, uh, to this technology that we're developing. Certainly the way it's being developed with this machine learning where we just plug in all of this data and then tell it some specific parameters instead of giving it general parameters. So I think that's the that's a very good example. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Steve and then Abraham. To the uh, commenting on the artificial intelligence, I think that, you know, if you think of it, it's it's really what we're talking about is algorithms. And, you know, we're talking about just like you're going to find stupid people and you're going to find smart people. So, I mean, you get you could have stupid algorithms and very effective algorithms. So there could be very effective algorithms 
geared towards being a source of, well, right, like even today, the the algorithms that, and the other part before I get into that is that the best systems today are all neural network systems. They don't just load them with data, they teach them how to learn. So it's the same thing with uh, teaching a student. You know, just because us as humans, we learn from another human teacher, that doesn't mean that we're not you know, if we become, you know, effective and are able to answer questions in, in an appropriate manner, that doesn't mean that we're not intelligent just because we were taught by a human. So it's the same sort of comparison. You could have a program that's, you know, an algorithm that's set up very well and very effective, which there are, are tons of them. The, the ones that come to mind are the ones that are using in the legal professions. They specialize in teaching them how to apply case law. And, you know, it would just be the same way that they would teach somebody going to law school. And the same thing they're doing with programs for uh, medical advice. The, in many, many cases, the, the algorithm is able to do a better diagnostic of radiology uh, or symptoms than uh, a doctor. Because again, it's, and it's again, it's the idea of learning from your mistakes. So if, if you had a program that was geared towards giving advice to young parents and you specialized it to that and you had, you know, somebody asked them, you know, is the baby crying? What the baby's crying? Why is it? Then they could say, well, did you feed the baby? Did you change the baby's diaper? It would be like using the example of uh, getting advice from a stupid person. So just because you could find examples where it's, oh, oh and, and the, the other one you were talking about with the computer knowing how to do the uh, thing in the restaurant. Well, if you had somebody come from another culture and stand in the restaurant and watch all that happen, and they they might not have a clue of what 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 was causing it. So they might need to have repetition of it and see it under under different circumstances. And then this person would would come up with, you know, eventually they could come up with the answer to that. So it's the same thing with teaching a program that's going to be something difficult to do, but they could eventually teach it. So I don't think those are necessarily limiting factors for uh, artificial intelligence being actually intelligent. And those are good points and, and definitely worthy of discussion. You did raise some very good points there in terms of the neural networks being very powerful, being able to teach the neural networks. and then But then maybe that gets into the question of who's doing the teaching and whether the teacher is endowed with intelligence and wisdom and knowledge, which is sometimes missing in these algorithms. And it also raises the question, I think, though, of the outputs. Do we understand the outputs of the machine? You know, in the example you used of the legal profession, I actually was talking to a lawyer about this because he he actually deals with these algorithms. And one of the things he said about the algorithms now is they're actually extending the algorithms to predict the outcome of the cases based on the name of the judge. And so an articling law student would go in to their whatever the system is that it's called put in the name of the uh, of the judge, and then the computer would analyze the judge's previous decisions in similar cases and come up with a prediction of how the judge is going to react. And therefore, 
the articling student could then build a case based on how they think that the judge is going to react, which really becomes a bit of a feedback loop. I think instead of doing the actual thinking about what are the principles involved here, I certainly see the same thing in my profession, in the accounting profession. When we look at the output of the machine, when we put in a a query related to an income tax question where the rules are very specific and very interdependent and the machine spits out an answer, we have to know how to interpret that answer. And I have seen many cases where an untrained accountant in that particular area of tax, for example, will get an answer and will misinterpret it. They will think that that is the only answer when in fact they are meant to dig in deeper. So I I do have some experience with that and I, I do see some benefits, but there's also that problem of understanding or interpreting the output of the machine. And I think that's where it still does need some sort of human involvement and human intelligence, I think, in that process. And certainly the algorithms are programmed by humans. Just to reply quickly, it's in your example of, like, say you had a young attorney and he got a case at a firm and there was a, a lawyer that's been around for 40 years. And he would say, well, who's, who's, the, uh, who's the judge you have? And he says, oh, I have Judge So-and-so. Oh, okay. So here's what Judge, you know, from his 40 years of experience and knowledge, he would give, give that young attorney advice. This is the direction you could take. They, they're a strict interpretist of the law. So this is your this is the advice. That's exactly the same advice that you were saying that this computer program is giving you. And the same sort of thing with, you know, when you're saying that you have to wonder what's being fed into the, the algorithms and who's building it. And is, is that appropriate? It's the same thing with who's teaching a child. There's really garbage in, garbage out. You know, it's like that's that's the same sort of issue. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and when you mentioned the word appropriate, so that's certainly an element of this dialogue is what is appropriate and is the appropriate always fine. Yeah, I guess, you know, theoretically, if the machine had all of the inputs and we were sure that the machine was properly analyzing all of the judge's decisions and that it understood the context in which the judge was making these particular historical decisions, because different decisions decisions may be driven by different factors at different times. And I guess theoretically, if the machine understood all of the causes of those various decisions and was able to correlate those causes with the present circumstances, which are different, then theoretically, I guess the machine could do that. Uh, I just, I see in practical applications, some difficulties with that, but certainly it's, you raise a very good point about the potential certainly of these algorithms. And it's something that we need to consider, but maybe consider in the context of what Olga told us, that example of not having the baby at the beginning. Well, that's not possible in the order of time. It's not possible to go back and not have the baby. So there's still some work to be done on some systems or or maybe better than other systems, but there's still some work to be done, I think. So thank you for raising that point. It's it's certainly a a valid one. And, And certainly as the machines are becoming better trained and better with the neural networks. I think that's something that we can always consider and and keep in mind. So we'll go to Abraham. Uh, Thank you. I wonder, maybe some of you are already using it, but I wonder if folks heard about ChatGPT made by OpenAI. It was released about uh, 10 days ago. So I've been playing with that for a few days. It's very good. Like uh, it, they remember your, your your dialogue and context of that. So I just tried a moment ago. So it reached maximum capacity. So 
in seven days, I think a million people are using it, but now I think more people are using it. So uh, what I sense is that quite a while ago, while I was using Yahoo search engine, someone mentioned me that Google is better. So I've never heard about Google. And many people, most people, I would say, using Google to search things. So I see just uh, a chat GPT surpassing uh, Google in very foreseeable future. So it's a, uh, I, I want you to check it out. It's called chat GPT. It's free. It's mm -hmm. just demo version. Uh, so even you can have a philosophical conversation with that. Uh, what I'd like to articulate is about fine versus foul. I mentioned a little bit about the anthropocentrism, the, big, uh, the first remark of, of mine. And I think uh, uh, needless to say, ants are pursuing things uh, for their survival and prosperity, I say. So humans the same, either, whether individually or as a group or as a species. I think, uh, so philosophy, right? So love of wisdom. So wisdom of whom? I think uh, the parameter you mentioned is starting from individual and we can expand up to universe. But I think uh, when it comes to decision-making, I think we are made to take care of immediate things. I think in that regard, often cases, uh, lower level of understanding, I would say knowledge, uh, occupies a lot of things. But I think uh, at the same time, human capacity is we kind of sense it or acknowledge it. It depends on our, I think, uh, life experience and maturity that there is beyond that or on uh, beneath that. So, uh, this quick thing is, I, I thought about this issue when I studied philosophy by myself a while ago that there seem to be at least four domains of, I would say, understanding, if I can say. The, the first one is the domain that I know. Uh, second domain is the domain I don't know. The third domain is the domain I don't know that I know already. The last domain is the domain that I don't know that I don't know. So I think as we get older, we realize that some uh, people say young and dumb. We, at that time, we did our best, but in retrospect, if we can have time machine go back, we would done differently, right? So I think I have some of them. So I think, what about uh, when I am dying, what would that? I mean, if I lived longer, like a thousand years longer, I can uh, extrapolate, right, as a human being. So I think uh, when we say wisdom, I think uh, it's, we see a lot of human breath and wishes and desperation and so many things, layers, like, uh, great, like Dostoevsky's author's book, so many layers and depths there, but it's hard to even verbalize. But I think uh, because of the sheer the magnitude or gravity of this uh, truth, I call it, I think uh, uh, at some point in our life, we acknowledge, yeah, you are right. That level is, I would call it 
wisdom yeah and thank you for that there's definitely some things to think about there in terms of that aging process where in the course of our experience of this ever-changing state of motion that we exist in the present we learn more about motion and we learn more about i think the connections between cause and effect in time and maybe that's the intelligence part of it that you know, we we learn to connect cause with effects and so when you said if you lived to a thousand years and you were able to go back in a time machine you'd do some things differently i think we would all agree i would do the same thing um, because I would know more about the sequences of cause and effect, which I didn't know at the time. At the time, you know, you said that we're often motivated by some sort of immediate need, you know, whether it's an immediate emotional need or an immediate need for survival. We sometimes take actions without thinking of their longer term consequences, which if you had the benefit of time, you would go back because you would understand the sequence of cause and effect over time, which leads very well into the next reading that I have here on the screen. So I think that's a, a very good point and and certainly acknowledging what you don't know some of which you would know that you don't know it and i think you said other parts you you wouldn't know that you wouldn't know it but i think clearly hippias doesn't acknowledge what he doesn't know or he doesn't he doesn't acknowledge that there is anything that he doesn't know and you know socrates was famous for saying or the oracle at delphi was famous for proclaiming that socrates was the wisest man alive for he knew one thing which is that he knew nothing so he was always acquiring knowledge. So really, is there actually absolutely fixed knowledge in this state of becoming, which was actually one of the questions that uh, Socrates asked in the Cratylus. So I think that was an important point. And certainly chat GPT, which you brought up, I see it in the headlines every day now. Uh, it was in the headline yesterday of, I think it was either the Washington Post or the New York Times on the front page headlines in terms of this technology, which is replicating human speech and actually is causing some concern among academics, certainly, whether uh, students are going to use this to cheat in, in terms of preparing essays, which are passable. The machine is producing passable logic for essay purposes. And maybe I heard actually somebody said that some academics are now actually thinking of making their students take oral exams because they're worried that this replication of human writing is going to cause some some problems and certainly understanding in that case the output of gpt3 uh, would be very important and understanding whether it's actually logical output and whether it's produced by a machine or by a human i think would also be a, a important to understand and i don't think there's any markers that indicate unless it's specifically requested that the output is made by a machine so you could look at some of these outputs by gpt3 technology and chat gpt and not know that they were produced by a machine which doesn't necessarily have that knowledge of the sequence of cause and effects uh, over time that was helpful and I've, I've spoken about gpt3 in uh actually i think in in all of the episodes on crowdless and the crowdless that we did so thank you for that and um i just thought we could maybe read this section here uh, on, on the idea of knowing knowledge of cause and effect in time, which I think Socrates is equating with intelligence. So, and this is from 296E to 297D. And this is preceded by a discussion that Socrates and Hippias had from 295E to 296E, in which Socrates maneuvered Hippias into saying, first, the fine is useful things. So useful things are the fine. And then Hippias says that beneficial things are the fine. And then he says that good things are the fine. So Hippias goes from a definition of fine equals useful, equals beneficial, equals good, equals fine. So he starts off 
with fine and he ends with fine and he inserts three different things in between and he never he never focuses or arrives at a conclusion on which of these things is the fine um, so that's the discussion that precedes this particular part so it's that kind of uh, feedback loop he starts off while saying fine things are fine then useful things are fine then beneficial things are fine and then beneficial things are good and therefore the good is fine and so Socrates is rather dumbfounded by all of this. And we have this dialogue here at 296E to 297D, which picks up on that. So, uh, and again, I don't know if, if somebody would like to help read this or I can, I can read both parts. Why don't I read both, both parts here? So Socrates says, so the beneficial appears to be the fine we wanted, but the beneficial is the maker of the good. And the maker is nothing else but the cause, isn't it? then the fine is a cause of the good. Hippias says, it is. Socrates follows, but the cause is different from what it's a cause of. I don't suppose the cause would be a cause of a cause. Look at it this way. Isn't the cause seen to be a maker? Hippias says, certainly. Socrates says, then what is made by the maker is the thing that comes to be. It's not the maker. Hippias says, yes, that's right. Then the thing that comes to be and the maker are different things, Socrates says. Hippias answers, yes. Socrates says, so the cause isn't a cause of a cause, but of the thing that comes to be because of it. Hippias says, certainly. And Socrates says, so if the fine is a cause of the good, the good should come to be from the fine. And apparently this is why we're eager to have intelligence in all the other fine things, because their product, their child, the good, is worth being eager about. It would follow that the fine is a kind of father of the good. Hippias says, certainly, you're talking fine, Socrates. A little bit of irony there. Socrates says, then see if this is fine as well. The father is not a son, and the son is not a father. The cause is not a thing that comes to be, and the thing that comes to be is not a cause. Hippias says, that's true. Socrates declares, good God, then the fine is not good, nor the good fine. Or do you think they could be from what we've said? Hippias says, good God, no, I don't think so. Socrates says, so are we happy with that? Would you like to say that the fine is not good, nor the good fine? Hippias says, good God, no, I'm not at all happy with it. Socrates says, good God, yes, Hippias, nothing we said so far makes me less happy. I I really like this, the, the, the drama in here, this, this good God being repeated a number of times as if they're just discovering some great truth that Socrates is actually being trying to tease out of Hippias for the whole time. And Hippias thinks that it's a discovery and Socrates is playing with him. I, I just The dramatic elements in this dialogue are, I think, among the best of Plato's. I actually, in the collected works of Plato anthology that I get this from the introduction to this dialogue says that there has historically been some doubt whether Plato wrote this dialogue. When I read this, I have no doubt whatsoever. This is completely quintessentially Plato. And certainly these dramatic elements, I think, are, are Plato. And so here there's this question of what is the cause and what is the effect, you know, because the order of time as I said in the introduction, at least I, the way I think of it, I don't know if anybody else has any disagreement of this, but cause always comes before effect. I mean, that, that seems to me the order of time. Cause always comes before effect. So really, Socrates is questioning Hippias's understanding of the connection between cause and effect. And Hippias gets into this sort of recursion 
going back to the cause without ever understanding what the effect is and, and then talking about the effect without ever understanding what the cause is. So it gets into kind of this repetitive loop here. And, you know, then there's a part that goes on about, you know, where Socrates talks about self-deception. Uh, you know, is, is Hippias really deceiving himself? Socrates, this is at 298b, Socrates is you know, saying, what, shall we say that fine activities and laws are fine by being pleasant through hearing and sight, or that they have some other form? Hippias says, those things might slip right past the man, the man being Socrates' alter ego. Socrates says, by dog, Hippias, not past the person I'd be the most ashamed to babble at or pretend to say something when I'm not saying anything. Hippias says, what's that? Socrates says, Sophronicus's son, he wouldn't easily let me say those things without me testing them any more than he'd let me talk as if I knew what I didn't know. And the, the joke here is that Sophronicus's son is actually Socrates, which Hippias doesn't know. So Socrates makes this reference to himself, which Hippias doesn't know. And so Socrates is continuing his little joke here and his deception of Hippias, who is deceiving himself. And Socrates is trying to call into question this idea of self-deception, which I think you know, it seems that Hippias is really engaging in self-deception through this whole thing, that he hasn't fully thought things out. So in terms of that whole discussion of cause and effect, does that make any sense in terms of the intelligence of the order of time? You know, going back to the beginning of Anaxagoras, his philosophy was that the mind is responsible for the order of events in the universe. If Anaxagoras is correct, then man would be the measure of all things. The you know, human mind would be the measure of all things, and that measure would determine the order of things in the universe. But I think Socrates is saying that there's really something else that determines the order, and it's that natural uh, sequence of cause and effect that determines the order. We can cause things, but we don't necessarily know what the effect is. I think that's maybe what Abraham was saying in terms of having a time machine and being able to go back. If I if I knew the thing, some of the things that I caused, if I knew the effects of some of those things that I caused, I would go back and change it because I didn't like those effects. So I would erase some of my mistakes that I made. But whenever we cause something to happen through an action, whether it's a thought through action or whether it's a some sort of immediate reaction to some immediate need or perceived need, we don't know what all of the effects are going to be because the effects are dependent on other humans and how they'll react. And we don't necessarily know how they'll react. We can't program an algorithm to determine the outcome of all of the causes we put into play. And so I think that's maybe where this understanding of the sequence of cause and effects and patterns in that sequence becomes important. Does what uh, Socrates say here in rebuttal make sense? And is what he's saying about the order of cause and effect in time make sense? Abraham. So I think regarding the issue of cause and effect or causality, I think it's it's a some aspect of wisdom, but I will not say that represent. I would say wisdom. I don't know. Yeah. This is not directly related. This is not like a linear uh, approach, I would say. But what comes to my mind regarding uh, more, more circular manner, I would say, is that uh, I think uh, several months ago, I heard how people were curse of the wise man, the curse of wise man. The more you know, the more you suffer. We heard about it, but the curse of knowing 
So what it means by that one example is that uh, you can see, let's say, like I'm talking of omnipresent and omnipotent, you know, those concepts, omnipresence. If you know, let's say, hundred or th let's say thousand hypothetical, how thousand people's lives, like God-like, how often do you think you'd cry? If we extrapolate, if you know what's going on with million people, can you function even? I'm a father of three children, but the other day my daughter vomited like 3 a.m. So everything stopped. I only focus on that to make sure she's not getting sicker. And if she vomited, so I didn't even care about how dirty it is. My focus directly go to her to give a solace. Everything is fine. Like give her everything I can do. But I think the, the some of the thing is the wisdom. When you talk about the wisdom, I think it's not only about knowing and understanding. The other side is that what would you with that? What would you do with that? Whether we call it ethics or we can uh, divide, but I think they are connected actually for the sake of our conversational understanding and through centrism, we tend to divide, but they are really interconnected. I think, uh, yeah, maybe in the future, I think uh, what would you do with wisdom or the other side of twins, I would say, or the other side of wisdom? And that's an interesting example. I think what you were saying is that wisdom isn't just knowing specific outcomes, but I think the implication there is that it's knowing the kind of general outcomes or not maybe the word outcomes isn't the right word there, but maybe just generally how things work. And that's, I think, why Socrates said in the Cratylus that wisdom is understanding emotion. So there's lots of motion. That's not saying that we know how that motion is going to turn out but that's saying that we understand how that motion works as a general parameter to the way that things do turn out based on cause and effect. And cause and effect, that understanding of that is intelligence. Understanding of wisdom is understanding of the general parameter in which that intelligence can form. So you have cause and effect happening, and those happen within motion. So first of all, we understand how motion as a whole works. And then we understand the sequences of cause and effects, cause and effect that come within that uh, that motion or the parameters of that motion. So maybe that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, and that's that's kind of what I understood from what you were saying in in the example that you gave. So yeah, it, I think that general understanding is is very important. And that's why I started with a question about the difference between wisdom and intelligence. So thank you for that. I wanted to take a look at this other reading here that I have at the end. And I might not go through this entire reading because actually we're running about shy of time. I think we have just about 10 minutes left, but this is at 301B to 302B. And this is all a question about dividing things that Socrates starts to get into numbers. And he's talking again, he'll talk again about even and odd numbers in this, as he often does through Plato's dialogue. I think there's some clue that Plato keeps planting there with knowledge of even and, and odd numbers, even numbers being divisible equally and odd numbers not being divisible. He uses this analogy and he ties it to even and odd numbers because here Hippias has said that uh, things that are 
pleasant by sight and by hearing. So these, these two sensory perceptions, sight and hearing, somehow things that are pleasant by those two sensory experiences, Hippias has said just before this section, that those are fine things. So again, he's redefined fine now as things that are pleasant by sight and by, and by sound. And Socrates begins to question him on this. You know, he says, well, if it's pleasant by sight and by sound, so that it's two requirements for this pleasantness, and you've said that pleasant in that case is fine, so fine would apply to things that are both pleasing by sight and pleasing by sound, but what about each one? What if something is pleasing by sight but not by sound, or something is pleasing by sound but not by sight? How could it be that the fine could apply to both together, both sight and sound together, but not to each one individually at the same time? And they get into this discussion, and that's why Socrates uses this analogy of even and odd numbers. So the even number would apply to or be analogous to sight and sound together, which are two things, and you could divide them in the middle. So you could divide uh, the two elements, sight plus sound. Or if it's one object, you can't divide it. And that would then be an odd number. One, he says, is an odd number in this. So let me just read at least the beginning of this. So 301b to 302b. Hippias says, but Socrates, you don't look at the entireties of things nor do the people you're used to talking with. You people knock away at the fine and the other things by taking each thing separately and cutting it up with words. Because of that, you don't realize how great they are, naturally continuous bodies of being. And now you're so far from realizing it that you think there's some attribute or being that is true of these both, but not of each, or of each, but not of both. So he's talking about sight and sound here. That's how unreasonably and, uh, and unobservantly and foolishly and uncomprehendingly you operate. So he's being very categorical here. He's, he's really condemning Socrates' approach. Socrates says, as if he's giving in, he says, oh, that's the way things are for us, Hippias. They're not the way a person wants. So runs the proverb people often quote, but the way he can get them. But your frequent admonitions are a help to us. This time, for example, before these admonitions from you about the stupid way we operate, Shall I make a still greater display and tell you what we had in mind about them or not tell? Hippias says, you're telling someone who already knows, Socrates. I know how everybody who's involved in speeches operates. All the time, all the same, if it's more pleasant for you, speak on. Socrates says, it really is more pleasant. We were so foolish, my friend, before you said what you did, that we had an opinion about me and you that each of us is one, but that we wouldn't both be one, which is what each of us would be, because we're not one but two. We were so stupid-like, but now we have been instructed by you that if two is what we both are, two is what each of us must be as well. And if each is one, then both must be one as well. The continuous theory of being, according to Hippias, does not allow it to be otherwise. But whatever both are, that each is as well, and whatever each is, both are. Right now I sit here persuaded by you. First, however, remind me, Hippias, are you and I one, or are you and I two? So there's really some interesting logic that he's pursuing here by use of number as an analogy. And we had this really fascinating discussion about number in our last episode on the Cradleus, trying to place number in the context of language and our understanding of language. And I think maybe there was a general conclusion as I re-listened to that discussion that number gives us a way to communicate more precisely about things. So 
The number two is clearly different from the number one, whereas it's questionable whether beneficial and good and applicable and all of these other terms that they've used to try to define the good. It's questionable where the limits of those words are, but you know, the limit of one and the limit of two is different numbers. They're clearly differentiated. So numbers are differentiable, whereas language and words aren't necessarily differentiable. And so maybe that's why Socrates brings number into here, as he often does in, in dialogues. And he often talks about this difference between even and odds. I think there is there is a message in there that from Socrates that we are meant to understand, you know, some things are divisible and some things aren't divisible. Certainly in the Cratylus, Socrates made the point that to have scientific knowledge of language, we need to know where, I'm just trying to remember the, the term, we need to know where things divide and where things put together. In other words, as we're differentiating all of these concepts, where do the differences agree and where do the differences disagree? Where, where do things connect and where do things not connect? It's sort of this geometry of knowledge in the sense that geometry is all about connection. And where do we make these connections in our understanding of language and words and the and the, the origin of words, which was really the, the basis of the crowd list. But now here we're trying to understand the context of words uh, in time and, and understanding the different meanings that are applied through time and the different uses that are applied through time. So I think time is very much a, a feature of this dialogue. And I wonder if there's any thoughts on this particular section here uh, or about this whole idea of cause and effect. And, and is there any general conclusion that we can draw from the, from the greater Hippias? I think certainly the question of whether man is the measure of all thing, I think that question comes out in the greater Hippias. It certainly comes out in the Cratylus. It certainly comes out in the Theotetus. I think it comes out in the Mino, which was where Socrates said that all knowledge is recollection, and recollection is the account of the reasons why. I think all of this theme of is man the measure of all things keeps coming out, and I think there's some question as to whether we are always capable of being that measure when sometimes we're motivated, you know, as Abraham just said about different things, there might be an immediate need because of a sick child that we don't necessarily think through all of the measurements that we have to make. Uh, Olga at the beginning talked about intelligence maybe being a process of calculation, and, and that's where we apply our understanding of cause and effect in the order of time, what comes first, what comes second. We apply those calculations, but we need that overall wisdom to understand how all of those calculations fit into all of these motions of things that are happening that we can't predict. Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's one general conclusion that's coming out of this. I think I see very much time all through this dialogue as a theme. And, and Hippias clearly not being able to understand time. And certainly the part at the beginning, which I didn't have a, a chance to read, but you'll see in the notes, the section that I presented on the discussion about the, the Spartans, where Hippias said that if the Spartan law allowed him to teach the Spartans, they would very much benefit from his teaching. And Socrates says, well, are the Spartans actually, is their law actually good? Is their law actually fine if it doesn't respect the historical benefits of teaching, and they only keep to their own historical practices, and they don't accept other practices. Uh, so Socrates is saying, well, is that really beneficial? Is that really fine? Is that really good? And then all of those terms, beneficial and fine and good, come out at the conclusion. So that the part that I'm referring to is near the beginning at 284b to 285b, which if you want to read, our, that's in the notes, near the beginning of the notes. 
So, well, we are at the end of our scheduled time. So I wanted to thank everybody for being present and for, again, a whole number of great contributions to this discussion, contributing to things that we hadn't thought about before, bringing out some new ideas and, and making us think deeper about these connections here in this very dramatic, very actually quite interesting, I think, dialogue. It's, it's one that we may come back to in terms of uh, referring to what we've found in here to some subsequent dialogues that we'll cover. And in that respect, I wanted to say that uh, our next scheduled session would actually be on Christmas Eve, so we won't do that. So I think this will be the last session, the last group session for 2022, and we will reconvene in January. So we'll take a break for the uh, for the holidays, and we'll reconvene in January. I think we'll reconvene on January 15th, and we will look at the dialogue, the Philibus, which we have looked at once before. We did that about maybe a year ago, and you can go and listen to the recording of that if you want. We only covered the first part of the Philibus, maybe the first third or the first half, and I think it's worth going back to the Philibus now and re-looking at it in the context of what we've learned with the Greater Hippias, with the Cradlus and with the other dialogues that we've looked at since we first looked at the philobus. We didn't finish the philobus, and the, the end of the philobus talks very much about pleasure, which ties, I think, very much to uh, the greater Hippias, certainly at the end when they're talking about what is pleasant through sight and sound. I think we may see this theme coming out in the philobus, and the philobus is about understanding the limited, but also the unlimited. And the limited here, I think, in the context of both the Cradlus and the philobus, uh, or sorry, the Cradlus and the uh, Greater Hippias, the limited is the beginning and the end of each particular thing, but the unlimited would be maybe that realm of being uh, where there are no established limits and how we connect those two realms together. So I think we'll find some interesting points in the philobus and we'll, we'll spend a couple of sessions on the philobus. So we'll start that on January 15th. And then once we finish the philobus, we'll go to the Protagoras, which Protagoras is another sophist and we may be able to compare Protagoras to Hippias. I think Protagoras will turn out to be uh, quite a more intelligent sophist than Hippias. So certainly we'll, we'll see maybe a range of sophistry here. So that's, uh, that's coming up. So we'll reconvene on January 15th and wish everybody a great holiday in the meantime. And so I will end the recording now again with thanks to everyone for attending here. And I hope to see you all in January. And for those who wish to stay online, we'll start the recording and um, we will have a casual half hour unrecorded discussion of Plato's Cafe. We can just talk about you know what we've just covered or Plato in general or or philosophy in general. So uh, anybody who wants to stay online, you're more than welcome to. And uh, otherwise, I hope to see everybody in January. Have a good holiday. Bye.